Daniel's vision of the four beasts. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up and, and stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful, incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, the thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like white as wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. The river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched them because the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted for them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and its kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, we've got some work to do, y'all, in the book of Daniel, so... I'm excited to be able to uh, join you this morning. This is my first time in Chattanooga. My wife, Lee, is here with me, and uh, we are really glad to be among you. Uh, I know that y'all don't know me at all, and so this is my first time among you and your first time encountering me, but I want you to know that um, actually I'm, I'm a fan of Sojourn Chattanooga and um, have been part of your story in a couple different ways, um, there's reasons why I feel sort of an affection for you, though I've never been among you. And the first of those is because I was there uh, the day that your network was founded. 
uh, Sojourn Chattanooga is part of the Harbor Network of Churches. And uh, when that network was being formed, I was on a patio in Louisville, Kentucky, in the midst of those conversations. And I believe that Sojourn Chattanooga was the very first church planted as a part of that church planting network. And so because uh, I had some dear friends who were part of the very beginnings of your network, um, I have known of you for a long time and uh, have been rejoicing to see what God's been doing here. And uh, the second reason that I'm really excited to be among you and feel an affection for you is just because uh, I love your pastor. I love Isaiah and Elizabeth. Uh, they're dear friends. And um, you have a really godly uh, leader leading you and a person of integrity and a person who loves the Lord Jesus and loves his word and loves his church. And uh, so it's a joy for me to get to celebrate and be part of what God is doing here. And um, I hope that you all... Um, I know, listen, I, I lead a church myself, and being part of a church and being in the leadership of a church is not always awesome. It, churches go through ups and downs, and they have struggles and challenges, and so I want to encourage you in the midst of everything that God might take you through and all the joys and all the challenges of being a church together, um, I hope you will honor uh, the leaders that you have um, as the scriptures remind us, right? Elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, and I know that um, Isaiah is one of the most faithful laborers I know in that work, and so hope that you are thankful um, of what God's given you in his leadership. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention before we dive into the text of Daniel 7 is that um, the church that I am a part of, Coram Deo Church, as Isaiah mentioned, in Omaha, Nebraska, um, because of Isaiah and Liz being called here by the Lord in his providence to serve here, uh, we feel as a church a sense of connection to what God's doing here. Part of our vision as God has strengthened our church and given us some sort of um, stability, we started out, you know, church planting like you guys did. And so there's been a lot of sort of uh, steps along that journey. But as he's brought our church to a place of stability, one of the things we've tried to do is just to continue to invest in the work of church planting and church renewal, both through raising up leaders and training and coaching, and also through investing in churches. And so every year our elders just sit down and ask, hey, how do we want to sort of invest in the churches that we care about and the things that God is doing in various places uh, in the country and in the world? And so our elders met last Wednesday night, and we knew of the, the challenge that the, the elders here have laid before you of trying to get the funds set aside to purchase this space. And um, I feel like, I feel convicted that um, you guys need to own this space and to have, as Isaiah mentioned, a, a beachhead for the gospel in Hill City. And so we just wanted to pray and ask, how can we put some momentum behind that as a church? And so our elders are going to make a gift to that project and to that work of $20,000 at the end of this year to try to help put some wind in the sails to what you guys are doing. And so I hope that encourages you, and I hope it also spurs you to sort of greater generosity. We want to see you get to the place at the end of next year where you have the resources you need to make uh, the step that you need to make to make this place yours permanently. And so uh, we're delighted to be part of that effort and to celebrate and partner with you in the work that God is doing here in this neighborhood and in your city. And I hope that's a blessing to you and an encouragement to you as you guys continue to um, invest together in the mission of God. Um, I want to start, before we dive into the text of Isaiah, I want to start with a question that you're going to find odd, but I promise you it connects to where we're going. I'm going to make you do a show of hands here, okay? How many of you in your home, in your apartment, 
in your dorm room, wherever it is that you happen to spend most of your days, uh, wherever you live, how many of you have hung things on the walls in the space you live in? Most of There's a few of you that apparently just really like blank walls, but most of you have hung things on the walls. I want to know, what's, what, are some of the, what are some of the things you have on the wall? Somebody from this side of the room, tell me something you have hung on the wall. Pictures, okay, somebody here. What do you, what are, what, besides pictures, what? Curtains, okay. What about y'all? Mirrors? What? Paintings, okay, good. Um, isn't it weird that when we dwell in a space, we tend to want to hang things on the wall? I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that dogs don't do that, birds don't do that, even gorillas and chimpanzees don't do that? Only human beings hang things on the walls in the spaces that we live in. And I got to thinking about this, and it made me want to go around our church building and just see what various people on our team have hung on the walls. We uh, bought a church building four years ago now, this really beautiful uh, mid-century church in Omaha. And I've got a, a, a bunch of people on our staff. And so I just went around to various offices and I took some photos of what they have on the walls. The first thing is uh, we have, as you do in your house, some, some pictures of the history of our church. So this is a hallway in our church where one of the things we've hung on the walls are just pictures that tell the story of our church. Pictures of moments of our church gathering or baptisms or significant um, turning points in the history of our church. And so that's one down this hallway. We have all these photos hung of the, the, the story of our church. Then this is uh, Olivia. She's our worship leader. She has a ukulele hanging on her wall in her office, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if she ever takes it down and plays it, but she wanted to have a ukulele hanging in her space. Uh, Ryan, who is our resident hunter, has a buck hanging on his wall in between the windows on this very narrow column, as you can see. And so that, can, that tells you what kind of person Ryan is and what he wants to sort of celebrate with his space. And then here's the weirdest one. Aaron has a spatula hanging on his wall, and I don't know why. And I zoomed out because I wanted you to get a sense of, like, the space. Like, there's his desk with his computer, and then he's just got a spatula hang on the wall. And I, I, I asked him, hey, what is with the spatula? And he said, well, as you might have noticed when you saw it, if you're a Star Wars fan, it's a Stormtrooper spatula because Aaron is a Star Wars guy. And I said, hey, why do you have the spatula on the wall? And he's like, well, it's a, it's a Stormtrooper spatula. And I said, yes, I know, but why is it hanging on your wall? And he was like, well, because my wife won't let me keep it in the kitchen. And then I asked, okay, but why is it hanging where it is on your wall, like above your desk, like it is eye level in a place that seems just very odd? And he said, well, because that's where the nail was. So I guess he just put, see, there's a nail on the wall. He's like, well, I got to put something there. And so the thing that he put there was the stormtrooper spatula. Um. What are we doing when we hang things on the walls in our homes, in our offices, in spaces that we call our own? Well, what we are doing when we do that is we are making meaning. Human beings have a compulsion to make sense of 
our lives and our worlds. We have a compulsion to fit things together into coherent narrative. The Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith says that to be human is to live according to some dominant narrative by which we make sense of our world and the purpose of our lives in it. So to be human is to live according to some narrative by which we make sense of our lives and of our world. What Daniel chapter 7 is giving us is a narrative to make sense of the world and of your life and my life within it. If you understand Daniel 7, you understand all of history and all of reality and all of your life. That's what I want to convince you of. You understand this chapter, you have the key to understanding all of history and all of reality. And listen, even if you're here this morning as a skeptic, even if you're not sure you embrace the story that Daniel chapter 7 is telling, you still have to have a narrative to make sense of reality. You have to replace this story with some other story. And since the Enlightenment, the dominant narrative that many people have used to make sense of the world is what I would call the narrative of progress. The narrative that humanity is always moving up and to the right, that the story of the world is one of endless human progress, and that if we just keep progressing, our innate human potential will overcome all obstacles and will lead to justice and peace and prosperity. That's the story that many people in our world embrace. But I want to ask you, does that story ring true? Does it seem to you to do justice to what we actually see and experience? Does it seem to you like if we just apply a little bit more human ingenuity, we're going to be able to solve all the problems and all the challenges and defeat all the evil in the world? Daniel 7 has a fuller, a better, a more profound story to tell us about reality. And for those of you who've been around for the past few months, I've know, I know that you've been making your way through uh, the book of Daniel. And here in Daniel 7, the genre, the kind of literature shifts from narrative to apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is that weird literature in the Bible that you find, for instance, here and in the book of Revelation and a few other places. And what apocalyptic literature is about is you might think of it as subversive revelation. It reveals what's true in a way that's veiled rather than direct. And because of that, apocalyptic literature tends to be highly symbolic. It uses a lot of symbolic images, pictures, and metaphors to speak of underlying reality. If you are a movie buff, think of the symbols that you find directors using in movies that have a deeper meaning underneath the symbol. Think of the blue pill and the red pill in the Matrix. Think of the spinning totem in the movie Inception. Think of the ring in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. These are not just set pieces. They are symbols that have deeper meaning and that tell a deeper story. And the same is true in apocalyptic literature. Beasts and horns and clouds and fire. 
These are symbols that point to things beyond themselves. So, without further ado, let's dive into Daniel chapter 7. Does someone have uh, the page number of the Bibles that's, that are around if you want to use one of those? Oh, Isaiah's going to pull it out and find it. I was like, oh, I didn't write down where you can find Daniel 7, but I want you to look at it in your Bible. 790, is he right? 790, okay. Page 790 in one of those Bibles under the chairs. Daniel chapter 7. I want to look at the vision of Daniel 7, the meaning of Daniel 7, the surprise of Daniel 7, and the call of Daniel 7. So let's move through this chapter together. First, let's think about or let's look at the vision of Daniel 7. What you will notice in this chapter is that it breaks into four scenes, okay? In the first scene, which we find in verses 1 through 8, Daniel sees this vision of four beasts, and it describes what the beasts are like. Then in verses 9 through 14, we have this vision of the Ancient of Days and his everlasting dominion. In verses 15 through 22, Daniel asks for the interpretation of the vision. And then in verses 23 through 28, there's further elaboration on the fourth beast and final judgment. So let's look at each of these four sections briefly. Uh, First, in verses 1 and 2, let's look at it together. The text says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So remember, we're, we're, we're being told about a vision And so the descriptions here are very visual. It should feel like a movie script to you because that's what's being described. He's using words to describe something he saw. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So notice the four winds of heaven are all blowing at the same time, meaning this isn't a normal storm. And the sea in the Bible is a symbol of chaos, of the unformed world. So anytime you see the sea, think back to Genesis 1. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters and then God brings creation into existence. The sea is a manifestation of chaos. He says, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, God gave human beings dominion over the animals. And that what threw the world into confusion was a beast, the serpent, seeking to overthrow and undermine the rule of God. So these four beasts coming up out of the sea are ungodly, idolatrous, evil powers. And he describes each beast. There's one that's like a lion. With eagle's wings, there's one that's like a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. The third is like a leopard with, with wings. And then the fourth is, it just says, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It's like this hybrid monster with iron teeth. And notice he says that fourth beast has ten horns and then there's this little horn that comes up among them. Now... The key is to look down in verse 17 and notice how the Bible tells us the interpretation of this vision. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So this vision Daniel has is of four earthly kingdoms. And when we compare this chapter with Daniel chapter 2, which you've already looked at, and Daniel chapter 8, which is yet to come, 
we can identify these four kingdoms, these beasts and what they represent. These represent the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Four actual, real kingdoms that have arisen on the world stage. So, the first thing Daniel sees is these four beasts that represent four earthly kingdoms. The second section starts in verse 9. Notice what we read there. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The Ancient of Days is a reference to the one who has always existed, God himself. It says he's sitting on a throne and his court sat in judgment. So this is a scene of the glory and the judging power of God. And we see these references to his clothing being white and his throne being fiery and a stream of fire coming out before him. These are all images in the Bible of purity and of holiness and of glory. You'll notice in the vision There's one who comes like a son of man, verse 13, and to him is given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The Ancient of Days is not threatened by the beasts. Though the beasts are fearful to Daniel, they don't seem to bother the Ancient of Days at all. There's no sense that there is concern on the part of the Ancient of Days about the beast. In fact, it says, the beast was killed and its body destroyed, and as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. So that's the second section, this vision of God on his throne. In the third section, which begins in verse 15, we're back to Daniel, and he says this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to be the interpretation of things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So these four kings will arise, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom. And then Daniel asks for further information on this fourth beast, because the fourth beast is the scariest and the most disturbing to him. And so in the next few verses, verses 19 through 22, this angelic messenger gives more clarity about that or sorry that's that the angelic messenger's response starts in verse 23 thus he said as for the fourth beast there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces as for the ten horns out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them he shall be different from the former ones And he shall put down three kings, he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion of the greatness of the kingdoms 
under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. I just realized that I'm using the ESV, and I think most of you have the CSB, so if there's a few language differences, that's why. So, that's the vision of Daniel 7. That's what Daniel sees. Four beasts, the throne of the Ancient of Days, then asking for more interpretation and more clarity, especially about the fourth beast, and then this interpretation given of what's going to happen when this fourth kingdom arises. So let's move now from the vision that Daniel sees and talk about the meaning of Daniel 7. You will notice that in verse 16 it says, One of those who stood there told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. So we have not just what Daniel sees, but we have an authoritative interpretation of what this means. One of these messengers comes to Daniel and gives him the meaning. So in a sense, the text interprets itself for us. We're not left to wonder, what is, what is this vision about? What is this describing? The text is interpreted for us. And I just want to draw out three truths that are entirely clear from the interpretation given here and that will not surprise you as we talk about them. The first truth is this. God's people will experience persistent opposition from beastly powers. Verse 17 again, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. At the time of writing this, Daniel is in Babylon where he has already experienced strong and persistent opposition as a faithful follower of God. He's about to experience the fall of Babylon to the Persian Empire, where he will experience more of the same. And then in 334 AD, Alexander the Great is going to conquer the known world quicker than a flying leopard. And then in the first century BC, the Roman Empire will replace the Greek Empire and rise to power. So in quick succession, Daniel and his descendants are going to experience the persistent opposition of various beastly powers, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And the ten kings that arise out of the fourth beast are probably to be understood as all the world powers that might trace various aspects of their lineage to the Roman Empire. So that would include, by the way, all the European powers, Russia, England, the United States of America, Egypt, even such things as global capitalism. These things all carry forward the heritage of the Roman Empire. And the little horn, the little horn that, that, that the end of this chapter talks about, is the one the New Testament refers to as the Antichrist. And as the book of 1 John reminds us, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. In other words, we're not to expect that only in the future are God's people going to experience some kind of opposition, but rather, God's people are going to experience persistent opposition from beastly powers. That's the first truth that this vision is showing us. Second, this vision shows us that a son of man will come and receive dominion and glory and a kingdom. 
Daniel 7, 13, and 14 are by far the key verses in this chapter. Let me read them again. Daniel 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There's only one kingdom in the entire Old Testament that God said would last forever. It is the kingdom of the descendants of David. And so this promise in the book of Daniel shaped among the Jewish people the expectation of a Messiah, a human deliverer, who would come in the line of David to conquer their enemies and deliver an everlasting kingdom. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So, the meaning of Daniel 7 is God's people will experience persistent opposition from beastly powers. A son of man will come and receive dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And finally, one day the Most High and his people will reign over all the earth. Look again at verse 14. It says, all people's nations and languages should serve him. And in verse 27, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people the saints of the Most High. In other words, the Bible's vision of your future, if you belong to God through Jesus Christ, the Bible's vision of your future is not your disembodied soul flying off to heaven. The Bible's vision of your future is the saints of the Most High having dominion over the kingdoms under the whole heaven. When Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is what he has in mind, this vision in Daniel 7. When Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he really means the earth, the kingdoms of the world. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Philippians reminds us. Your destiny as the people of God is to one day reign over the earth, not in some disembodied way, but in a way that very much is real and tangible and physical. So we've seen the vision that Daniel has, and we've seen how this text also delivers to us the meaning, the interpretation of these things. So let's look thirdly at the surprise of Daniel 7. By the first century, the time of Jesus, a strong messianic expectation had developed around Daniel chapter 7. One like a son of man was going to come, Daniel had said, and receive dominion from the ancient of days, from God himself. And all peoples and nations and languages were going to serve him. And so this is what the Jewish people expected and looked forward to. And if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that when Jesus comes on the scene... He often uses the title Son of Man to refer to himself. But when you read the Gospels, it's not clear, is Jesus using that title in a Daniel 7 kind of way? Because after all, Psalm 8 verse 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, 
and the son of man that you care for him. So the term son of man can just mean a human being, someone like you and me. So often when Jesus calls himself a son of man, he's just, he's just referring to his actual real humanity. But there are a few moments when Jesus' son of man language starts to sound very much like Daniel 7. Let me read a couple of them to you. You'll see them on the screen. Matthew 16, verse 28. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The reference of a kingdom sounds a lot like he's using Son of Man in a Daniel 7 kind of way. Mark 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. These words from Jesus create suspicions that he's claiming to be the Messiah that was promised in Daniel 7. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, these suspicions reach a crescendo until finally at his trial, the climactic moment happens. Mark chapter 14, verse 60, records for us. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Clear Daniel 7 language. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And that gets us to the surprise of Daniel 7. Jesus had tried to prepare his disciples for it. Mark chapter 10 reminds us, in taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Wait, what? That's not how it's supposed to happen. Daniel 7 doesn't say anything about the Son of Man dying. In fact, it says that the fourth beast is going to be killed. And then the Son of Man is going to receive an everlasting kingdom and he's going to reign forever. So by the time of Jesus, every Jewish person knew that Daniel's fourth beast was Rome. And that when the Messiah came, God would destroy the fourth beast and set up his worldwide kingdom. So the surprise, the thing that should shock you as a Bible reader, is Jesus claiming to be the Daniel 7 son of man, and quoting this text while he's on his way to be crucified by the Romans. If Jesus is the son of man of Daniel 7, then why are the iron teeth of the fourth beast crushing him? The surprise of Daniel 7 is that that's how the dominion of the Most High 
is going to be exercised. The surprise is that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's totally different from the beastly kingdoms. And that's what many people in Jesus' day missed. They were looking for a Messiah who would fight the beast with beastly power. But it turns out that the beast is going to be destroyed not by the power of force, but by the power of sacrificial love. Jesus would crush the beast by allowing the beast to crush him. And then three days later, rising again from the dead. You see, the mistake that the religious people of Jesus' day made is that they were reading Daniel 7 in a linear way. They assumed that the four beasts would come in order as they did, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then after that, the everlasting kingdom of the Son of Man would come. But the text doesn't say that. The surprise of Daniel 7 is that the kingdom of the Son of Man is breaking in in the midst of the beastly kingdoms. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, this is what the apostles understood. This is what the apostles, they were like, oh, this is what we missed. When Jesus in Luke 24 has his Old Testament survey class with his disciples after he's raised from the dead, says he taught them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. I am positive that Daniel 7 is one place that they spent time. It's not that the kingdom of the fourth beast ends and then the kingdom of the everlasting Son of Man begins. Rather, it's that the everlasting kingdom of the Son of Man is breaking in and being established in the midst of the kingdom of the fourth beast and the ten others that come after it and the one that comes after that. The eternal dominion of the Son of Man is breaking in now. Look how Paul says it in Ephesians 1 using Daniel 7 language. He writes in Ephesians chapter 1, He, God, raised him, Christ, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When Daniel had said, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. Paul says what Daniel had in mind was the church. Jesus Christ, risen, resurrected, and reigning, now gathering his people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation through his church that right now is going forward in the midst of the beastly powers who are persistently opposed to God and will continue to persecute and oppress his people. And nevertheless, in the midst of that, his kingdom is going forward through his church. So that gets us then to the call of Daniel 7, and this is where we will close. What does Daniel 7 call us to? What's the invitation? What are we to do as people living right now in 2023 
in Chattanooga, Tennessee with this mysterious apocalyptic Old Testament text. The call of Daniel 7 is very simple. Here's what it's calling you to and me to. Give your life to the true king and to his everlasting kingdom. Make your life about that. That's what this text is telling you. I told you it's giving you a vision of history, a picture of reality, a narrative by which to live your life. What this text is telling you is earthly kingdoms are going to rise and fall. And all of them are going to be animated by power dynamics that at the heart are oppressive and that will persistently oppose the ways of God and of his people. And yet, in the midst of all of that historical upheaval, Jesus Christ is building his kingdom. The Son of Man has come and he has received an eternal dominion. He has defanged the beast through his death and resurrection. And now his kingdom is going forward and you should absolutely be part of it. That's what you're to do with your life. Listen, you're going to give your life to something. All of us are going to live for something. You're going to make your life about something. It's going to be your career, or it's going to be your family, or it's going to be your aspirations and pursuits, or it's going to be your artistic endeavors, or it's going to be the thing you sort of want your life to be about, your vision of what the good life is. You're going to give yourself to something. Verse 27 of Daniel 7 is right now in flight. The greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven is being given right now to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's happening right now. And you get to get in on that. You get to be a part of that. And I want you to have a vision that's as big as the promise here in Daniel 7. Did you hear it? Let me read it again. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Do you hear all the shall language in there? What that's saying is, this is happening. doesn't matter how you feel about it. doesn't matter whether you're a fan of it or opposed to it. This is happening. This is what God is up to. And so I want you to have a vision for your life that's as big as the promise here in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 27. Listen. The kingdoms under the whole heaven belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is gathering for himself a people made up of all peoples, nations, languages. His dominion is everlasting. And ever since his death and resurrection, the kingdom of God has been going forth and toppling one earthly kingdom after another as Christians all over the world come to faith in Jesus Christ and as churches get established. And this is what you're supposed to be caught up in. Like, I want your vision to be that (laughs) the kingdoms in Chattanooga, Tennessee will be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want you just to have a vision for Hill City. I want you to start there. But I want your vision to be like, what if God wants to use you to plant more churches in Chattanooga beyond this one so that more and more people here can be brought into the kingdom of Jesus and bow the knee to him and be part of his multinational global people? That's what your life's supposed to be about. That's what you ought to give yourself to. So the call of Daniel 7 is give your life to the true king and to his everlasting kingdom. This is the most important thing you can do with your life. 
this is the most important thing you ought to be about. And in whatever vocation God has given you and in whatever neighborhood he's placed you in and whatever friends he's put you around, the thing he wants you to be about is the glorious reign of the Son of Man and inviting people to leave behind their other alliances and affinities and to come and bow the knee to King Jesus. This is what we ought to give ourselves to. Daniel 7 is giving you the meaning of all of life and the meaning of all of history. It's a vision big enough to demand all of your allegiance, all of your prayer, all of your labors, and a vision particular enough to speak to your neighborhood and your family and your workplace and the people around you. Let's give ourselves to this king and to his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the Son of Man. That you have come and conquered the beast and that you did it in an upside down way that none of us could have foreseen. By suffering, by dying, you have conquered the powers of this world and all opposition to you. And you've done it through humility and sacrifice. And so now you call us to come and bow the knee to you, to give up our own rebellion toward you, and to be caught up in your kingdom of love and sacrifice that we might give of our lives to see our friends and family and neighbors enter into the kingdom of King Jesus and be part of his everlasting dominion. So would you extend your kingdom in our hearts this morning? Would you transform us to be a kingdom-oriented people? And would you extend the boundaries of your kingdom beyond Hill City, throughout the city of Chattanooga, and to the ends of the earth, so that we might have the joy and the privilege of being a part of the glorious purpose of history for which everything else exists, which is the summing up of all things in Christ. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.